Welcome to Inflection Point, the path to IPO, an exploration of technology investing trends across private and public markets. Tech investing has been highly specialized in both the public and private spheres, employing different skill sets and strategies depending on stage, sector, and capital structure. As the investing ecosystem grows and matures, new approaches have begun to blur the lines between seed, early stage, venture, growth rounds, and public markets. A crossover investor is a fund that builds a bridge between private equity and public markets. It operates concurrently on both sides, private and public, and in some cases, perhaps most critically, can serve as a cornerstone in the transition from one side to the other. This strategy has propagated globally with subtle distinctions based on region, risk appetite, and ecosystem rigor. We explore these fundamental market shifts in our written report, which will be released with the final episode of this podcast. During our research, we had the opportunity to interview various thought leaders to get their perspective on these dynamics. Though we include some of the key commentary in our written report, we decided there was tremendous value in sharing the audio recordings with you, the listener, to provide an intimate look through the lens of people operating day in and day out in this space. The first six episodes will feature startup founders and executives sharing their perspective on the path to IPO. In the final episode, you'll hear from industry-leading bankers and investors outlining the best practices they've developed through years of experience overseeing the process. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking and insightful. This podcast was produced by Revaya, an ESG-focused global growth equity investor headquartered in Europe with offices in Paris and Berlin. The following is not intended as financial advice, and Revaya and guests may hold positions in some of the companies referenced during the show. Olivier Payes is the co-founder of Aircall, a cloud-based computer telephony system that got its start in a startup studio in Paris in 2013. Since then, the company has scaled tremendously, becoming France's 16th unicorn, that is, a company valued at over $1 billion, and more recently achieving Centaur status, reaching $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Olivier and I talk about the early days of the business, the challenges that come with scale, and how he thinks about the future of Aircall as a high-growth pre-IPO scale-up. It's worth mentioning that we at Revaya are proud shareholders in the company since 2020. Without further delay, I bring you Olivier Payes. Hi, I'm here today with Olivier Payes, uh, the co-founder of Aircall. Uh, really excited to have you here today, Olivier, and to discuss a little bit about crossover investing and the, the path to IPO. So welcome. Hello, Kyle. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, I figured, uh, you know, Aircall is at a, a pretty tremendous journey. I, I thought maybe we could start by talking a bit about your background, where you came from professionally, and introduce us, for those who are unfamiliar, to the story of Aircall, its, its founding and its successive uh, fundraising efforts and, uh, and, and growth efforts. Okay. So, uh, personally, I'm an old entrepreneur, let's say. So, I had a career before, before Aircall. I started in strategy consulting. Um, and then I wanted to run factories. So I did run a few factories in the steel industry uh, for a couple of years. Um, and then I got tired of that. I wanted to create my, my company, right? So I started in 2013 thinking, you know, what, what idea can I find? What team can I, can I find? And reconnecting with, uh, with old friends, then we came up with the, the idea of, of Airfall, 
right? Um, we, we assembled the team within eFounders, which is a startup studio uh, in, in Paris. Um, and, and that's where I met my, my yeah, co-founders, right? So Jonathan, Pierre Baptiste, and Xavier. Um, and so the four of us, we, uh, we started the company. Uh, I mean, it's a long story, but uh, yeah, started the company in 2014. Um, went to an acceleration program in San Francisco in 2015 and then raised our first round in January 2016. And I was with Balderton, right? Balderton Capital in the, in the UK. And then from there, there was, uh, there was a seed round that we followed six months later with a Series A. That was an internal round with Balderton again. And then expanding uh, B, C, D uh, over the years. Um, the last, last round was uh, in 2021. Um, so a bit more than, than a year ago with, with Goldman Sachs. So really exiting the venture stage, the venture capital stage, and getting into the late stage investing with, with Goldman Sachs, with an idea as well of, of thinking about, okay, next for us uh, could be an IPO. Gotcha. So I'd love to learn about going through so many uh, fundraising stages. Each one had to be slightly different. What were some of the outliers or, or significant differences between that early stage round and the, and the later stage rounds that you've been a part of leading? Yeah, so it's, I mean, as, as you develop, it, um, it changes from being uh, a round based around the founders towards a round based around the metrics. Right, so clearly the series, the seed and the Series A, um, I think the decision of Balderton to invest was much more in the founding team. Uh, the space, the idea, but we were not super clear at the time. We had very few customers. We had a, a product that was still in the making, uh, but we had a good team. So I think they started with, with this. Um, and then later stage from Series B, C and D, then it goes into metrics, calls, retention, and demonstrating a healthy growth and, and a fast growth, right? Uh, obviously, if you ask me, my, you know, the biggest memory is that the, the C round we did uh, in March 2020, so C round, uh, we, we just started the round in February. We got terms since beginning of March, and the same week we were negotiating the final terms of the term sheet, uh, Dow Jones crashed because of COVID, uh, the president of the United States blocked the borders and suddenly the term sheets disappeared. So it was like the investor saying, oh, poop, poop, poop. <laughs> come on, <laughs> and just let's pause a little bit. They're like, no, 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 let's try to close the deal. We finally closed the deal at different conditions than what, what we had imagined two weeks before. Uh, but it was important to, to get the deal done. So that was a very hectic moment for sure. And so you, you mentioned this transition from the the early stage venture to late stage venture. Part of the I think the the inflection point that we're focusing on in this report is the the, the path to IPO and, and taking a company public. And I'm curious what what do you what have you witnessed uh, as you march towards that direction? Again, uh, no 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 public disclosure on on anything necessarily. But what, what are the what what have you seen as a, a leader at a company in the late stage? Uh, that is a prerequisite for preparing for an IPO. You mentioned the difference being a, a founding team at the early stage versus a metric-driven analysis from a late-stage uh, venture fund. What, what do you think that, uh, that, that pivot point is from the late stage into the public markets that would be necessary? I think, I think for us, the uh, first, the, clearly there were two phases. Raising uh, money with uh, venture capital firms, is a specific topic, 
we did not mention IPO at all, uh, or, or the idea of becoming public. It was the focus was grow as fast as you can, just grow, right? And we were in a moment between 2015 or 2016 and 2020 where, you know, there was, there was plenty of money, uh, investor money, and it was it was all about trying to d double, just at least double, 100% growth. Uh, and, and whatever the cost even, or, you know, without thinking further than that. The big difference then when we moved to phase two is when Goldman Sachs came in. And as we stand today, uh, so north of 100 million in, in revenue, we're, we're still not on the verge of IPO, right? We're pre-IPO stage clearly, but we're really at the beginning of the process of taking the company public ready. But when Goldman Sachs came in last, last year, it's a different type of actor. So what they look at typically is a bit different. Of course, they look at the numbers, the metrics, and, and the growth potential, but they look a lot at the compliance, the way the company is organized and structured. And as a startup, as a startup, there's a lot of things you do so-so, huh, right? A lot of things that are in the gray area you don't really care because you have to grow, so you put all your efforts on this. So it's a moment where as, as a leadership team and as a leader, we had to refocus the priorities and saying, okay, some countries we can't continue selling because the regulations is changing. So either we adapt to the regulation or we don't. Uh, this is typically something that is important for IPO, but as well important if you stay a private company when you have Goldman Sachs, right? And, and in general. So we had to make a lot of efforts. We, we, what happened is we multiplied by four the legal team, for instance, in, in a year from now. Because we have to cover all the aspects. We're a regulated business. We work in telecoms. We handle sensitive data, right? So um, we, we're a global player. So we have to adapt to all the regulations all over the world. And different in the U.S. You have emergency coding in the U.S. You have GDPR in Europe. You have, you have many, many, many things you have to, to care about. So we started thinking, hey, we still have to grow fast, but not at the expense of being extremely organized, extremely clean, right? Um, and that applied as well to the way we run our accounts, we run our finance, right? So we had a bunch of entities and with COVID, it was a mess, right? You had people all over the place. You had to make sure you absolutely, you know, by the rules, right? Um, so th this is a core piece. And the second core piece is all the classical IPO processes, right? So CPQ, um, quote to cash, hire to retire, all the classical, like you, you have like five to 10 processes, right? And we started putting that in motion. And that was interesting because historically, our teams are very entrepreneurial, right? We take a lot of initiatives and we started saying, hey, you can't, you can't just send a quote like this. You have to, you know, as a salesperson, you have to first make sure it goes into a process. So now the quote is going to be issued by Salesforce and validated by finance, these kind of things, right? There's a lot of, so we started putting a lot more processes. We still have, we've done 20% of that. So... The, the objective we have is, is by next year to be 100% there, or let's say sufficiently to be public ready. Uh, but then you start to see that you have a lot of, 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 of processes. And in that process, a big change we made, a very important hire we made is a, is a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer. Right? So someone who's managing our data team, our IT, our security teams, and makes make sure there's, the systems are in place. This is very key for the IPO is the ability to just, you know, be very resilient, be very predictable. You obviously can't be a public company and have unforeseen events because you're just not organized enough, right? Mm. Right. So compliance is a, is, is a common theme that comes up, establishing the processes, uh, maturing the, 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 the formal aspects of the business, 
uh, accounting, you name it. And but but I think the ne- the next step is uh, seeking out the right uh, partners, the right you know uh, investment partners to bring a company public. So you've established a relationship with Goldman Sachs, obviously different than the early venture funds you were with. Um, but this is kind of a two part question. W- w- what are you looking for in an investor that can help bring you public? And second of all, is a crossover investor, however you define that, and we will dig into that in a moment. Uh, some, something that comes to mind, uh, crossover, cornerstone investor, anchor investor. Uh, h- how do you think about that um, as it pertains to bringing the company public? So um, our investors bring, um, bring different things. Um, they, bring, they bring knowledge, right? Um, and typically, a Goldman Sachs brings knowledge about how you take a company from private to public. That's interesting. It's interesting for the board. Uh, but I would say I'm not sure it's the most interesting because it, uh, typically we, we got a new CFO uh, about six months ago. And he's done multiple IPOs. So he brings that knowledge. He has that knowledge anyway. The second thing that uh, investors uh, can bring, and Goldman Sachs is very good at that, is bringing a, a network. Right. So part of becoming a public company is, is reflecting about the board, board of directors. And of course, early stage, a board of directors is made up of VCs and founders. Okay. If you start one of the public, you want to start introducing independent board members, which we started doing about a year ago. Right. Um, and typically here, Goldman Sachs helped us a lot. They, we just welcomed on board two months ago, the former CFO of spot. Uh, and, and that was through the network of Goldman Sachs and that's someone who's going to bring tremendous value when the time comes to be a, a public company. Um, and the, the last thing is um, the, the, the credibility, right? Um, so, of course, you want to come to IPO, you're going you're to try to rally the market around your project. It helps having good brand name investors that have a track record of successful former IPOs. Goldman Sachs is a good name. Typically what we're thinking for Apple is before we get to IPO, which is probably uh, two years out, two, three years out, if that happens again, spending so many factors, but if that were to happen, do we want to bring on board a crossover investor, right? Or someone who's, who can come in one, one year or eight months before, and then, and then maybe uh, at the IPO. Right? Um, so, and, and that's typically something that's relatively high on the agenda. Is that a must, an absolute must? Maybe not, but it's certainly something we're looking after. Right? Okay. And, and, and uh, so speaking of, of, of timelines, what is it that uh, you know, it gives you the estimate of a, of a two to three time, year, uh, time period? Rather? Uh, I, I was looking at um, you know, some, some uh, I guess, benchmark data on a, a close competitor like Ring Central. Uh, you know that they have you know two billion in ARR, growing thirty one percent year over year. Are, are you looking at benchmarks like that to get a sense for when it would make sense to go public, or what other factors uh, play into that that decision making process? So we're not so much looking at uh, competition, really, right? So it's it's more in, internal. But there's a few things that need to be in place. So one is we have to be public ready. Um, and so this, I mentioned this point, this project, these processes earlier, it will take until the end of next year. And again, what our objective is, let's say, is not to, to force the IPO. It's just, we want to put that in place because it makes the company stronger, 
sounder, but we're not going to rush to do it. So we're planning that it takes another 12 to 15 months, might take a bit more, maybe 18 months. We want to balance the growth and all the projects we have, the innovation we want to be able to and those processes, so depending on the bandwidth. So that's the first factor. Second factor is the size. Today, we're north of 100 million, uh, and we believe 200 million is a good ballpark size. You can do it maybe a bit earlier, uh, but over the past years, we've seen that the size, the average size of IPOs gets larger and larger, right? Uh, and there are a lot of benefits to that, right? Of course, becoming public as a, as a fixed cost, right? You start having a lot of costs that you didn't have before. Uh, as well, you need to be predictable, right? You're gonna, you're gonna announce, you can, you're gonna announce your, your results and you wanna, you wanna meet and beat these projections, right? And the bigger you are, the more, the more history you have and the more resilient you are, in a sense, the more predictable you are. Um, so when do we get to 200 million? Probably, probably sooner than two years, uh, in two years. But, you know, by the time, maybe in 18 months, we're there, um, 12 to 18 months, and then you can start the process uh, on the S1, et cetera. And then that takes another six months, right? And, and again, so that's why we're thinking two, three years. The last factor that is not in those two, three, two, three years is uh, the state of the market, right? You have sometimes you have moments where you have windows for an IPF, moments where you don't have a window. So right now, even if we were ready, even if we were at 200 million plus AR, we would certainly not jump to an IPO right now, right? So, so we're thinking that's a reasonable time frame. And again, we we don't see the IPO first. It's not the goal, right? The IPO is just it's a milestone. It's a very important one, but it can happen, you know, in two years. It can even happen in five years, or even never happen. Right? Uh, on our board, we have um, the f- a former executive from uh, a very large private company that was two billion in revenue, the same size as Ring Central you mentioned. Always private, never did an IPO. So, who knows, right? But we're thinking two three years is probably a good a good horizon for our investors for our employees and for the company to become a public company right well it's an interesting point you make that it's a, it's a milestone it's a it's a part of the journey but there are you know alternatives other companies stay private indefinitely others hold off uh, later on you know outside of liquidity and uh, for for your for your uh, your employees and your your shareholders uh, and perhaps some public visibility what what are their motivators are there for taking your company public? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of them. Uh, you, you clearly get more visibility, especially for us. We're, we're very, very focused on partnerships, uh, on, on building partnerships with, uh, with other softwares, with resellers, with other players in our space. So becoming a big company is a, is, a, is a proof that the company is here to last and it helps, it helps being on the, on the radar of, of other people. Uh, and there's another aspect that you, you did not mention that can be helpful is it makes easier an M&A strategy, right? Uh, we've grown organically so far and we've, been, we've enjoyed a very nice organic momentum. Um, but logically, as we grow and we want to expand our suite of product and the value we deliver to, to our customers, we're, we're looking at, at M&A opportunities, right? Or we will be looking. If you're public, it makes easier an equity deal, right? Because there's, there's a price. You don't have to discuss the value of Airfold. Uh, whether it was last year's value or today's value, you can argue for ours, right? If you're public, you're public. So that's what it is. So potentially that's a, that's a value add too. You mentioned the, the market downturn ha- having an impact on perhaps the, the window in which you'd want to take a company public. I'm also curious how that impacts your uh, near-term objectives. There's been a lot of compressions in, in multiples. Does that mean that you've traded your focus on growth for a focus on profitability? How do you how do you think about that as someone who's in this 
pre-IPO stage. What's um, what's interesting is uh, actually this change and this rapid shift in the market comes at the moment that's uh, pretty pretty adequate for us um, because as we as we approach uh, public readiness and potentially an IPO, we want to as well make sure we get uh, you know as efficient as we can at growing, right? And a year ago or two years ago. If you ask me or if you ask our investors, they would say, no, no, but the growth is number one by far. And then how efficient is, yeah, it's important, but the growth is number one. Um, and, and by the way, we were relatively efficient. Now it's shifted, which is a good thing. Shifted saying, okay, whatever you start to grow, but we don't want you to grow 80%, 100% a year. But we want you to have a lot of efficiency and, and fix a lot of things that are not efficient and be very lean in the way you spend marketing, in the way you scale, etc." Uh, and to have a pass to profitability, right? Again, you can become public without a pass to profitability, or you could in absolute, but it's still sounder if you, if you think I'm going to be in the, in, the, in the public market to have a pass to profitability, right? So actually this change in the market helps us refocus on, okay, efficiency, and then three, four years out, how do we get a uh, break-even, which is anyway this, you know, what, what we're bound to do. And that would help us have a plan and have a story for, for the IPO and, and come to uh, to a possible IPO in, in two years with a lot, with a much more efficient organization, right? Uh, cleaning up. So this has changed a little bit with the luck that we had, that we raised money a year ago. We historically haven't been running too much. So we are, um, we're funded in a sense. So we're not, you know, we're not desperately looking for cash. It's always good to have, to have more cash, but uh, we, we have the means to just, you know, Take a breath a little bit and just focus on a project we call efficient growth. So grow, but you know, put it at the same level of growth and efficiency, not one below the other. Sure. When you're looking to achieve efficient growth, there's always a risk of, I don't know, uh, you're looking to cut the fat from the company without cutting the muscle. And I'm trying to think about, uh, you know, yeah, where where you allocate resources, how you, how you think about uh, approaching that with you know with, you know becoming leaner, becoming more efficient, uh, with without compromising, so to speak, is is that something? Have you ever encountered a problem uh, with this kind of efficient growth model? Uh, what what's some of the the experience you've had in that territory? Uh, I think the, the the luck we have is uh, we're still a very fast growth company, right? So uh, last year we grew seventy percent. Something like that, right? Seventy-two percent. So, so we we have a big momentum. So we don't have to restructure, right? Uh, when you grow seventy percent, you know, and and you're thinking, okay, if if I don't grow my headcount by seventy percent, but I take the time to grow my headcount by only thirty percent or forty percent, but I invest in systems and processes to have those people more efficient, then you can you can really get to your goal without you know taking tough tough decision so so that that's that's one element the second thing is until last year we're really maximizing growth so see that as a boat like a sailing ship we just every time we could find a new sail we just open the new sail and get get you know the more wind at the end you end up having a lot of sails and it's a mess and some of them are just useless you just don't know which ones so the good thing is so typically for us we have a lot of we're in a lot of geographies. We're targeting a lot of types of customers through a lot of channels and a lot of partnerships. Now, what, what we've been doing over the past months is 
reviewing each of them and saying, okay, is that really paying off? It isn't? Okay, fine. Okay, just put it on, put it on pause, put it in the fridge or cancel it and refocus on what is actually working. So we've really gone from having like 25 growth projects to seven that really matter and saying, okay, those ones, we're going to make sure they're super efficient. The 18 other projects, you know, we can live without it. And yes, it may cost us a few points of growth, but it's going to save us a ton of energy, right? So it's been really more, more reducing, narrowing the focus uh, rather than, than touching accounts because we're still, we're still hiring or, or uh, you know, shutting down some parts of the, of the company. Very interesting. I'm I, uh, curious about geography. I think this is kind of a nice place to land. I mean, Revaya is, a, is predominantly a European, although a, a global fund. Uh, but we have a, a personal sense of pride around European companies that, that come from Europe and inevitably ones that succeed tend to uh, migrate or at least uh, look for business uh, outside of Europe. Uh, as a part of their growth strategy, uh, you did that early on. You, you mentioned uh, by by taking a an, joining an accelerator program in in, in the U.S. Uh, you obviously have uh, an established presence in the U.S. now. I'm curious from your point of view: is the transition to the U.S. still a must for players that are growing and looking to uh, eventually potentially be you know be pre IPO, uh, take a company public? Uh, what what are your thoughts on? on uh, the, the U.S. predominance in the, the tech ecosystem and, and what can European players do to, to maintain some semblance of independence, so to speak? Yeah, what's interesting is what has changed between the moment when we started there called 2014 and now is that the European market, at least the SaaS market, has become so large in Europe that you can build you know, unicorns or large champions only in Europe. You don't have, you have, you don't have to go to the U.S. as you used to before. If you look at the French ecosystem, and you know you have some really fantastic companies that are focused on Europe, right? And the large, high valuations they attract U.S. investors too, and they're never going to go to the U.S. or or it's a very remote possibility. So it is possible because the SaaS market, the cloud markets, has expanded so much, including in Europe, that now you can build like a few hundred million dollars business only in Europe. It was not possible when we started Airflow, and that's why we wanted to be to be in the U.S because we wanted to be a large business. At the time, it was, it was critical. Now, so, so that's one, so you don't have to. That being said, I think you should. Right? You still should go to the US if you can, right? In, in our case, we're very horizontal tool. Uh, we can serve any customer in the world. And we had this vision very early on saying, we want the US to be 40% of the revenue, Europe 40% and Asia 20%. And now we're getting there. And, and we can, I mean, Aircall is not, you know, it works perfectly in the US. We, we have thousands of customers and they're super happy. So if they can, why would you not take the opportunity? So I still think that if you can, if you don't have a barrier, if you have a big leader, big US competitor that blocks you from, from coming in, it's worth investing money, deploying money, sending some funders there and building a big US approach because it increases the overall value of the company. You talked about IPO. I'm not sure we would have this conversation so much if we're on European. I mean, we can look at an IPO prospect in New York because we've got this 40% of the business in the US and, and we know it's going to be appealing to, to, the, to the New York stock market, right? For instance, right? It's not a must, but it, it helps a lot. 
Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, Olivier, I won't take much more of your time. I, I really appreciate your, your thoughtful answers. And it's a pleasure to speak with a, uh, a Revaya portfolio company as well. Uh, we're super proud to have you on the, on the podcast here. So thanks for joining. My pleasure. I'm proud to have Revaya on board as well. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again. And we will uh, speak soon, I hope. And best of luck in the, in the coming six to 12 months. Okay. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Olivier Payes, co-founder of Aircall. If this is your first time listening, you can subscribe and find new episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow along to gain exclusive access to the written report. See you next week for another episode of Inflection Point, Path to IPO.